This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. If you find value in listening to these conversations, please consider leaving us a rating and a review or sharing some of your favorite episodes with your creative community. It's the easiest way to show us some love and help others find the podcast. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of Independent Arts and Media, I Am, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can now make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about. Just click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to share what you're learning beyond the studio, please consider submitting to our listener spotlight to be featured on our social media channels. It's also the best way to pitch yourself to be a guest on the show. Just follow the link in our show notes or on the contact page of our website, beyondthe.studio. And uh, thanks for listening. Today's episode, I'm so excited to introduce my friend Laura Baston of Camp Never Nice onto the show. Laura, thank you so much for coming. Of course. So happy to be here. For listeners that are not familiar with your work or with your work, can you describe how you make art and what it looks like and kind of what your what your art business is, what Camp Never Nice is? Sure. Um, so Camp Never Nice is a custom letterpress and illustration print shop. Create images uh, using carved linoleum block printing. So it's usually like reduction carving, so relief printing. And then, but yeah, so Camp Never Nice is a custom letterpress poster and illustration shop. And uh, I do custom work for people who need gig posters a lot. That's probably the majority of my steady income. So it's a lot of like tour posters for bands. And with that, I use a combination of uh, relief printing, which is like reduction lino cut, and wood and metal type, antique wood and metal type. And then I print all of those things, all those surfaces on my Vandercook proofing press, the 1947 cylinder press. And it's in really great shape for being from 1947. But yeah, so it's all like you ink the surface of the block or the surface of the type, and then you press that ink into paper. And then you do that as many times as you have colors. So if there are four colors, you're going to run that one piece of paper four times. And we met, uh, I don't even remember what year it was, but it was probably like seven or like seven years ago or something. Am I rounding up or down? Um, let's see. We met, I was, I would assume it was after Peeler. We met through our mutual friend. It's between five and seven years, five and seven years. Um, (laughs) we met, through our mutual friend, Sarah Peeler, who went to Micah with Nicole and I, and she was a, or is a photographer, and she uh, knew I was really into, interested in letterpress and was like, I have to take you to the studio. I have to introduce you to my friend. You are going to love her. You're going to love her work. And she was totally right. 
and we've been friends ever since. And we share a birthday. So yes. we're just Aquarius Which, soul sisters. It's the craziest thing. So Sarah's boyfriend, partner, Thomas, he's also born on February 8th. So she has a triangle what? of very close relationships with people who are all born on February 8th. Unplanned. I mean, unless she's highly selective. I don't Happy belated birthday to all of you. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes, Thank I've you. Been 32 it's tough being a February birthday. It really is. Is no it? No one wants to yeah. hang out. Oh, it really time. is. Yeah. We all just have yeah. to move out to California. No problem. I know. Well, that's what I was, I was actually going to talk about that today. I was just like, well, something that I want to hear about from the rest of the maker community. It's just like January and February is just such a tough time. And maybe it's different in California. Maybe. Maybe if I was in a desert or on a coast, I wouldn't notice it. But uh, post-holiday season, you like wind up for the holidays, especially if you're doing craft fairs or, but even if you're not, like if I'm doing custom work in December and November, everybody wants you right now. They want everything that you'll sell them. They want it as fast as possible and they're willing to pay whatever you want. So you have this rush of demand and then it all just like vacuum sucks into the ground in January, like literally New Year's Day, you never hear a peep. And it's almost two solid months for me where my inbox is filled with like the dregs of whatever I would want to do. So it's like things that I was waiting to do until I had time. And then now I have time, but I have absolutely no motivation. And or it's like weird requests for jobs that I don't particularly want to tackle. Like maybe they're not in my wheelhouse, but I'm starting to feel a little desperate and antsy because I haven't had any work. So it's just like, maybe I'll do that thing. And it's just something that like absolutely is nothing I would say yes to any other time. And so whether it's just like sheer silence, or the only thing you can hear is the stuff you just don't want to even pay attention to. January and February is terrible for like creative work. So like I had this plan a long time ago where I was like, when I started the business, I started Camp Never Nice in 2015. We can like work backwards. But in 2015, that first season of it was obviously hard because getting something going, there's a lot of like logistics and paperwork and business license and sales tax registration and blah, whatever. But even that year, I was just like, I know what January and February looks like because I used to work at a print shop that was busy all the time. And even that print shop, which was like always their schedule was always full. January and February was two slow months. So I was like, OK, I'm going to treat these two months like uh, like I'm a teacher. Like this is my June and July. I should just always save up. And like mm. once I get to a place where. I have a little bit more money in the bank. <laughs> Whenever Never. that happens. But like once I get to the place, whenever I have like a storehouse, I'll use that money to travel. And so I'll, I'll like take a trip in January and February, just something to take, like close the books, close the email, close it all because there's nothing coming mm-hmm. in that I want to see anyway. And uh, so it was a great plan. It still is. Uh, but Now I would say more, I look at it as like, give myself permission to knit 
and watch Pride and Prejudice, the long version. <laughs> yes. Like, it's just like, <laughs> it's like, okay, yes. it's January. This means Anne of Green Gables is coming off the shelf. Like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like Amanda's talked a lot about those seasonal ebbs and flows, um, yeah. both on the podcast and just personally in conversations we've had. But mm-hmm. it feels like your business follows a similar kind of annual rhythm. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that it's over. Like, I'm pretty sure I'm done. I'm washed up. I need to go into early retirement. This is not my I'm not in the right business. I shouldn't be doing this. Uh, this is irresponsible. Um, when am I going to grow up? Like all of those thoughts just come flooding in and it's Mm. right around my birthday. So it's like, Mm. it's a horrible time to have a birthday. So this is like, (laughs) we're just talking about that's what triggered it. Well, yeah, it's like right around like what will happen is all that imposter syndrome and existential, whatever, the anvil of existential dread it lands on like I would say hits the hardest on about like February 20 something and then on February 28th your email inbox just starts like daffodils just starts like popping up (laughs) and then it like just reminds you oh my gosh people do need me I I do have friends and I do have work and I can be creative again and then Right after that, which is about right now, this week, it's like comes this wash of like, wait, how the heck do I do my job? I forget. Like I have completely forgotten. Like the rhythm has been disturbed for eight weeks-ish, give or take. Mm-hmm. And like I, I don't remember how to get up in the morning on time and actually go to the studio and really sit down at the desk. And, you know, it's just like. So then you have to start trying to figure out how to get the gears moving again. And yeah, it's hard. And you have to do first, you have to do all those things you like promised to do when you're panicking in January. And so like, that's what's even harder. You finally start to get. (laughs) Yeah, it all catches up with you. (laughs) The stuff you've been putting off. You finally get stuff that you're excited about, but you're like, oh crap, Mm -hmm. I said I was going to do that. Yeah, I had a job come in that I was really proud of myself. They wanted me to do football themed imagery, and I was like, "I don't do sports." No, <laughs> it was just a hard pass. <laughs> Can you imagine someone choosing to come to you for football imagery? Like nothing in your portfolio. Believe it or not, it's happened twice. <laughs> it's happened twice, and I've done it twice, and I've now learned my lesson. I'm just oh. like, you don't want it from me. It's not going to be good. It's nothing I'm proud of. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't want to put it out there that this is something I do. So, no, I will not. So let's walk back a bit yeah, and go sure. through. Let's go through, like. What's my timeline? Yeah, I guess we can talk about sort of, I always say that your creative journey thus far, but, you know, things uh I guess the steps within your your art career and experience that led you to think like do I want to be an artist how can I be an artist how can I do this as a job how can I learn how to do this kind of the the idea to the reality I guess yeah um so I I grew up in a really small town in West Virginia Buchanan and 
my family is incredibly supportive. My dad is kind of this rare breed where he's a tough guy, but he's also an artist. And he was an art teacher uh, years back. Um, but in my lifetime, he was a special education teacher. So he worked with um, severe and profound. I don't know if that's the right term now, but it was like nonverbal. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's just an incredibly gentle soul. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and he was really, he's hes a man of few words, but he really liked my art when I was little. And so it was exciting to like make art because my mom and my dad were both so pumped that I would like draw things all the time. And yeah, and I remember like I got a roll of paper. We had a family friend who uh the there was like a paper mill in our town. You know, it's like most small towns kind of have like there's something that goes out and everybody loses their jobs and it's a bummer and this paper mill uh went under when I was probably in like first first grade, second grade. And I just remember Andy Davis brought over this huge roll of paper that was so big I couldn't move it like we just had to roll it around the house it was just like I couldn't fit my arms around it so I I would make signs like I would make huge banners because I could say anything it could be 30 feet long if I wanted and so I would make like welcome home I would draw an entire neighborhood from like one side to the other that was like 15 feet long and it was just like house after house with dogs burying bones and stuff like that so like that roll of paper, I would say it's like my first poster experience. I just, it, you know, it's like I remember making them for everybody's birthday. Everybody would get a happy birthday banner. And, you know, you draw with the Crayola markers and every bubble letter has a different pattern in it. That kind of stuff when you're seven. And, uh, yeah, so that was really the, the beginning was just that I, I was told I was good from a very small age, you know, like you've got something here. And then, um, but I was really good in school too, uh, academically. I did not think that art was a job because, you know, you could, you could be an art teacher, but otherwise there's hobbies and then there's, you have a job. Um, and so I really, struggled a lot about what to do when I went to college because I was kind of, I was good at a lot of things, but I wasn't great academically. I just was like, I got good grades, terrible at sports. Uh, <laughs> whenever I tried to go to uh, pick a college, I just panicked. Like I tested really well on SATs and ACTs, but just like to what end was kind of like what I felt. I was like, I just don't know what I want to study. And um, so I picked pre-med because that seems relaxing. Oh, wow. Yeah, it seems like the easiest route to go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I really liked ER, you know. So (laughs) and so I just thought, (laughs) I just thought, you know. I I can do that. Yeah. And I'm not squeamish and I like knowing stuff about the body. So I was just like, yeah, that'd be cool. But first first class first day of biology first off the book cost three hundred dollars and the teacher did this whole like tough love kind of thing the very first day where she was just like you're not gonna like me 
we're not going to get along, but that's not my job. I'm here to weed out the people who aren't serious about this. And I was like, we're in a small liberal arts school in Buchanan, West Virginia. That's five blocks from my parents' house. Come on, like weed us out. You're lucky we're here. (laughs) (laughs) I was just like, all right. I'm out of here. I'm returning the book. I hadn't unwrapped the book from the plastic. Like I took it straight back to the, and I was like, that's it. You know what? I'm good at art. I'm changing my major. So like three days in, I think I like went back to the admissions office and just like sat down and was like, listen, I tried to pick a career, but I think I should probably just do what I'm good at. Can you just, can we, can I get some art classes? So, so I went to a small college the very first year and the art teacher there was kind of doing the same sort of thing. Like, you're actually, you're very good at this. You're good at rendering what you're looking at. Congratulations. And he was like, big fish, small pond situation. He's like, you might want to think about going to a, to an art school, you know, something with a bigger program. And my sister was living in Cleveland at the time or near Cleveland. And she was like, there's actually like, there's, there's an art institute here. She's like, you should just next time you come to visit, like bring your portfolio. It was the summer, the August, I think maybe late July, something like that. And it was like after my first freshman year. So I went up to visit her and then sat down in the office at CIA, Cleveland Institute of Art. And I showed them my portfolio and they were like, yeah, we'll give you a scholarship. And, uh, my mom worked at that other college. She, um, she she worked full time so that I could go to college for mostly free, and um, and they did a consortium so it was like a trade off, mm. and then they gave me a small scholarship stipend to cover my living expenses because we just That's great. we didn't have any money saved up. You know, it was like there wasn't like money for college. It was just my mom worked that job for years, knowing that I would need to go to college so that I could go to college, and then I was like. I don't know what I want to do. <laughs> She's like, well, you better figure it out. But anyway, so they were all really happy and it was, it was great. They sent me off to art school. But once I got to art school, that stuff about like, you're great at drawing falls into the trash. That is totally useless. Stops right away. <laughs> yeah. You're like surrounded by all of these serious, talented people. I mean, yeah. I think we all felt some level of that going into this yeah. environment where, yeah, maybe you're like the art star in high school or something. Yeah. And you come to this new environment 100%. and it's so intimidating. You all walked in and you can look because art schools are small for the most part. And CIA, it was like 600 total students and it's a five-year school. So that's not a lot of kids per class. So it was like you walk into orientation and you're just like, okay, so you were the one who was really good, but you're from a small town. It's like I was wearing American Eagle, and I loved John Mayer, and I had, like, boring hair. Like, I just <laughs> – I liked You've Got Mail, and I, you know, I just, like – I thought the mask of Zorro was great. It's just I was as basic as you can be when you walk into art school. And I was just a lamb led into slaughter. And I was a transfer. So on top of everything, I was a second year coming in and it was a first year. And 
I lived in a dorm that was an experiment, literally. It was, oh, no. they were testing out a new dorm and there were only five people living in it. And it was like six stories. So I had like a whole floor to myself. <laughs> Everyone on their own my, floor. But my room was eight by 10 feet. It was the size of a parking spot. And, but there are hundreds of these empty rooms. I just had one. Someone egged my window and it put like oh, yoke no. down my window. And so I couldn't see out my tiny window. Oh, and no. I was just like, oh, this is terrible. This is the worst. So I just hung out with oh, the freshmen. Little Laura. I know. And so I was like, hang, hang out with the freshmen. Nobody in my own class was like, I was the lowest chicken in the pecking order. And, you know, I like made friends with these two girls who were just like Andrea and Adrian, of course, two hardest names to say together. They were roommates. I remember that whole yes. first year. I'm pretty sure I just lived on Tums. Like I would just like go in their room and they had a big bottle of Tums on the thing. So I don't know why they had Tums. <laughs> But I remember they were like berry flavored, and I just walk in their room and like pop a couple of like, candy, <laughs> and I'd be like, "Hey guys, how's it going? I'm oh my God. I'm your resident Kramer, just in from the North Wing, the dorm that nobody knows about, that's a mile away from campus, on oh a hill. <laughs> I had to eat in a different cafeteria than everybody else." <laughs> Oh my gosh. I'm sorry I'm laughing so much. I just, I, know, I, I feel like I can relate to your story. I came from like, you know, public school in like a suburban area growing up. And I felt like, you know, I was really good at drawing. But when I got to art school, just like culturally it was an adjustment. Did not feel like yeah. I fit in as a, you know, your like typical art, art school kid. Um, so... <laughs> No, I relate yeah. too. I I feel like the second I showed up at art school, I immediately realized how uncool I was. I was like, oh yeah. wait, I thought I was cool. It turns out I'm quite the opposite. Yeah, that's what cool I, is. My you have all these like eighteen year old kids chain smoking in the corner, drinking Natty Bow, hosting warehouse parties, and that was not me at nineteen. Anyway, and I was just like. Mm. I just, and I drove like, this is, this is the best part. I drove this like 89 Volkswagen Fox that, uh, the horn would stick. And so I'd, <laughs> so I'd be driving up and I'd be like, <laughs> and then it would change pitch. <laughs> and it was like <laughs> so gravelly. And it would just get desperate. And so I'd just be driving up to the, the cool kids club with my honking car that barely ran. You could unlock all the doors as long as you had anything flat, a penny, paperclip, butter knife, anything. You could unlock any of the doors. And the headlights got stuck on once. And so to turn the headlights on, I had to like replug the fuse in, which was in the glove compartment which had a broken door <laughs> it just was it was a great car but uh didn't get you cool yeah. in art school yeah no. so this experience didn't deter you from committing oh, yeah. to a life of art I mean you you were like I'm well, gonna stick with this looking back I fit right in I mean like that car was my like 
my legitimizing ticket to art school, but I didn't know it at the time. Um, yeah, I, I was, so the first couple, the first couple of classes that you take are all like foundations classes where it's like you, you go in and you're, you paint the still life and you're really proud of yourself and your shadows look like shadows and your objects that are round actually look round. And then like you get to a critique and you're feeling good about it. And then the person next to you who just like, basically their entire painting looks like tinted mayonnaise, just a lot of different tints of mayonnaise where they just relied heavily on titanium white. And then they're like, she's visionary. <laughs> to you they're like we think that you're just really hung up on reality you know like you just need to expand on these and I was like I thought I was supposed to draw a chair with a vase and a blanket and a pillar why is there a Roman pillar <laughs> like it's just like so I just thought I was doing the assignment but anyway I just had a hard time in all those critiques just feeling like being good at drawing isn't enough, and that's all I had to begin with. And then it got even worse when it was just like, can you talk about your concept? Can you just like express the like the why of why you chose the subject matter and you know why you decided to go with a certain technique? And um, if it was about the how or the technique, even I could talk about it all day and. And I was comfortable with that because, like, exploring the medium was more exciting to me than, like, the concept, the the psychological aspect of it. And I used to just get so frustrated because I'd just be like, it's a gimmick. They're just pulling on your heartstrings. They're not very good. <laughs> not always. But, you know, it'd be like sometimes somebody would just be like, they'd put up something terrible that they made, but then they'd say it's about they're you know someone special that they lost or whatever and you'd just be like well now I have to say it's good and so I would just get so frustrated and the critiques and feel so much like lesser than and like I wasn't angry enough or that I wasn't sad enough or that I you know I just didn't work enough emotion into my work I just was really excited about trying trying to make something fun <laughs> And, uh, and so I just had a hard time finding anybody who made art seem fun and like drawing seem like it was okay to be badass at it, you know? And, uh, anyway, I went into illustration. I was in illustration for a little while, but I didn't feel great about it. And I was still kind of trying to find my home. And I had a buddy who was taking a printmaking class down the hall and I wandered in and I got to sit in on one of their critiques. And um, without even taking a single printmaking class, I switched my major and just became a printmaker because I was like, I love this. This is so cool. I have no idea how it looks like this. I don't know how you did it, but I love it. And I loved the fact that it's like it took things to the next level. It gave them it gave the drawings a story that they lacked as just drawings, you know? And so it was just like this in art school with no sense of like, this is a hard, this is such a hard thing to talk about, but it's just like, I felt so devoid of a voice that I was like, 
all I came here with was my skill. And I thought that was going to be okay. And now I'm like realizing it's like, I need something more than that. And printmaking was like, finally, a like a trade. Like I can learn how to do this. This is a thing you can teach me how to do. And it's a thing that I need a teacher to teach me how to do. I don't know if you can teach me to have to be able to do art speak. I don't know if I'll ever be able to write an artist statement the way that I'm supposed to, supposed to. And um, it just didn't feel natural or organic. Anyway, so once I found printmaking, I was like, I think I found my people. I was like, this is so fun. I was like, I can make stuff all day. And in making stuff, then people are going to ask me how I did it. And I can talk about how I did it and how long I burned it in acid and how, you know, it's just like, and how cool is this? It's like science. It's like when you're, when you heat it up to this temperature and then the resin drop, it's just like, there's a whole scope to it that is freedom of process. You know, like it's just, the art is second to process, you know? And so anyway, so I loved that. It felt like having tools. It felt like manual labor. And so I fell into printmaking and then I went to, uh, well, I dropped out. So I, I left Cleveland Institute of Art because <laughs> I found printmaking, but that journey had taken me to this point where I also understood debt. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I was oh, like, yes. <laughs> what the heck am I doing? Taking on these loans when I'm never going to get a job. Like I'm not going to be an illustrator and I'm not going to like, what am I going to do? How am I ever going to print? You need like presses for that. You need a whole shop for that. You need whatever. I was like, I'm never going to actually be able to do printmaking. Best I can get, I'm going to manage a coffee shop. I got to get out of here. So I was like, I'm leaving. I'm going to go back to the original college I started at that I can go to for free and, uh, and get rid of a little bit of this angst of feeling like I don't fit in in this world. And, like, I have great friends from that time. So part of it was delusional. But artistically, I definitely was, you know, I stuck out like a sore thumb. Or didn't, actually. I didn't stick out at all. That was the problem. I, like, retracted just into the walls. Like, there was no pat on the back coming from anybody while I was there. Or at least that's how it felt. Anyway, so I left art school but I went to SGC, the Southern Graphics Council Conference. I never know if the C is council or conference, but I've been so many times I should know. But I went to SGC in, uh, I think it was the one that was in D.C., in Washington, D.C., and I heard the Little Friends of Printmaking give a talk about poster art. And... um the Little Friends of Printmaking, and they, this is husband and wife duo, they, um, I think it's husband and wife, I guess we should fact check that, they're partners, but um, they got up there on stage, and they talked about art the way that I felt about everything, like, they got up there, and they were just like, we just loved playing with printmaking, we loved, like, messing around with it, and, like, we found ourselves there when we didn't have assignments due, you know, and just like, you know, our styles worked really well together. So we would like work on posters for our friends' bands and we were doing it in school and whatever. And so they like got up there and they're showing their artwork and it was silly as all get out. There was nothing about it that was like 
a serious, like, they weren't making any statements. It was fun, and the colors were bright, and the shapes were round and bouncy and happy. <laughs> and I just was like, these guys are a keynote speaker. Like, they have, like, the esteem and respect of their peers, and they're not bringing anybody down. This is so great. This is so encouraging. This is something I feel like I could do. Poster art. Who knew? Anyway, so that kind of put the, the bee in my bonnet. And we can skip over the next couple of years because I dropped out for a year. I went back to Wesleyan, West Virginia Wesleyan College. I finished up there with a fine arts degree and just scooted my way out of school and managed a coffee shop for a long time. And then my cousins live in Nashville, Tennessee. So this was, I was back in West Virginia living with my mom and dad, who I love, but I have cousins in Nashville, Tennessee. And they were like, they work in like music industry. So they were like, you should just, you know, come visit us or whatever. And I'd thought about going to grad school because I wanted to keep printing. You know, I, I had left art school and was starting to question it and doubt it and wonder if, I should have stayed and finished because now all the people that I was in school with, they'd all moved to Brooklyn. And so mm. once they left Cleveland, they like went to the city and started doing crazy cool stuff. And like they had puppet shows on the food network and people were having like awesome parties in Brooklyn and opening galleries and working for, although some of them had terrible situations that I didn't envy at all to live in New York is not an easy thing. No. So mm-hmm. I just kind of had this chip on my shoulder. Where I was like, I don't need to go to New York because I followed you guys one time. I don't need to follow you again. I'll just come visit. Thank you. Um, and I'll try to find my own path. So I went south. So I was like, maybe I'll go to grad school because I want to keep printing. And I had this amazing conversation with uh, the guy, Bove Lyons. He's the I think he's still the head of the printmaking department at UT Knoxville, I think. But Bobe looked at my portfolio and <laughs> just struck me right in the soft, tender part of my art belly and was just like, you, does any of this mean anything? And I was like, no, no, it doesn't. It's just that I like drawing old men. That was like what it was my senior thesis was I just did all these portraits of old people. And I was like, I don't know. I just kind of got obsessed with drawing old wrinkly faces for a while. And I just really liked it. And he was like, well, what does it say about like mortality and whatever? And I was like, nothing, nothing at all. I just really like their faces. And I was like, and he goes, well, what do you want to do with grad school? I was like, I just want access to the presses. Like, I just want to be able to print. I want to be able to draw and print. And I was like, so, and he goes, but it doesn't seem like you want to be in a fine art environment. Hmm. And I was like, no, I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, not at all. And he was like, well, have you ever heard about letterpress? And I was like, no. And he was like, there's this little shop down on Gay Street. It's called Yeehaw Industries. And, And I was like, I like the name. That sounds very sounds fun. fun. <laughs> and I was like, I will check it out. So I like left that interview kind of like he just freed me from the pressure of going to grad school because he was like, you don't want this. Mm-hmm. He's like, you're very talented. 
He's like, but you don't want to be here. He's like, this is going to challenge you in a way that doesn't seem like you're receptive to. And he's like, so I don't think this is for you. So it was like a amicable parting, but he, cause I felt I had that pressure that like grad school was my only option to keep printing, you know? So anyway, so I walked into Yeehaw Industries and, um, it's like the light bulb just came on. Like everything came together. It was like the music was right, whatever they were playing in there. Yeah. And I just was like, you guys are cool. I was like, you're my people. I found my people. I was like, it's like an antique store that works. I love it. And I was like, look at all these gadgets. So, you know, I asked them, I was like, how do you, how did you get this job? And they're like, well, we just, you know, interned and, worked here for a while and we're not really hiring nobody there's we got enough people so I was like okay cool dang that was fun (laughs) so I leave Knoxville this was like 2005 2006 I leave Knoxville and I go to Nashville and I visit my cousins and they were like I tell them I'm like there's this place it's amazing it's called letterpress It's like the way they used to print newspapers, but they're still doing it, and it's cooler. (laughs) And I was like, uh, I was telling them all that, and they go, oh, my gosh, we have one of those. It's right downtown. It's called Hat Show Print. You should go. So then I walked in to there, and Hat is, uh, you know, established in 1879. It's been around for a second. And so I've been arguing with them. I was like, there's no way it's as cool. There's no way it's the same thing. I mean, I've never seen anything like this in my life. And I'm a printmaking major. So <laughs> so I walk in the hatch and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'll be danged. It's another one. <laughs> I was like, and you, guys, you guys do stuff for like Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson. Crazy. So I was like, how do you guys get this job? And uh, I remember this girl who was working there. She is so rad. Uh, she's gone on to do some really cool stuff. But at the time, she was very intimidating. Jet black hair, like tattoos, red lipstick. Pretty sure some pretty heavy-duty piercings going on. But it was like, her name's Agnes. She's awesome. But she was standing there with her arms crossed. And I asked her, I was just like, so how'd you get this job? How does anybody get this job? Can I work here? <laughs> Like, my cousins live here. I can just move here. And she was just like, uh, you can't. And I was like, oh. At least Yeehaw was, like, nice about it. She was like, well, you can apply for the internship. So, like, I'm not realizing that this place is just inundated. Like, it's very popular. It's on Broadway. They get that question a hundred times a day. So it definitely wasn't personal. But I was like okay, how do I apply for an internship? And she's like, well, submit your resume and a cover letter. And I was like, do you have a piece of paper? So I like wrote my name down on a piece of paper with like my phone number and email. And like my... Like, here's my business uh, card. Give me a call. (laughs) Yeah, And like my professor's name and email for like a reference. And then my cover letter was basically just like, this is so cool. I just want to work here. Hire me, please. <laughs> and uh, they didn't call me. Like, I never got it. I had no follow-up because I didn't take it seriously. Like, I didn't, you know. So I was just like, all right. Well, that was fun. 
But uh, then I went into like some store and I saw another letterpress poster, like a lino cut sort of situation in like this little tiny store called Fire Finch. And I walk in and I was like, well, I'll be dang, there's another one. <laughs> These letterpress studios, they're everywhere. And they're everywhere. It's like once you find them, they're everywhere. Once you know what it is, once you know what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it said Isle of Printing on the bottom. I-S-L-E, Isle of Printing. And I was like, I'll find it. Like now I'm on like the hunt, you know? So I looked it up and I like map quested it. Oh, yes. I remember those printed days. out the directions and uh, I show up in front of what should be aisle of printing and it's a carpet warehouse and I walk inside well there was like an art supply store across the street so I walk into the art store first and I was just like I'm looking for Bryce McLeod aisle of printing and they're like oh yeah yeah, yeah. Bryce is across the street and I went across the street and there's a carpet store. And then I went back over to the art store and I was like, that's a carpet store. And they're like, yeah, he's in there. But just like, just, you know, he's in there. So I was like, okay, great. So I like walk in there and there's like a fan blowing a cat and carpet, rolls and rolls of carpet. And then this lady comes in behind me with like a bag lunch and she was just like, hey, sweetie, how can I help you? I was like, I'm in the wrong place. I'm looking for a letterpress print shop. Meanwhile, both Hat Show Prints and Yeehaw had like adorable storefronts on a main street <laughs> that you walk in and there's a counter, you know? So in this situation, I'm kind of expecting the same thing. So I was just like, I'm looking for this aisle printing. And she goes, oh, Bryce, you looking for Bryce? He's around the back. She's just like, so you just walk out the front and you're just gonna walk up the side and she's gonna go through the gate go around the back and then there's a garage door. You're just going to go in that garage door. And I was like, all right, thank you. So I walk out the building. There's a um, adult bookstore and a train track that are just on the other side of their building. And so there's just torn out pieces from some porn magazine that have just blown against this chain link fence. And so I'm walking past these like, you know, nudie, nudie pics and I'm just like what the heck is gonna happen and it's a chain link fence with barbed wire across the top of it and then I like get to the gate and you have to like jam it open it totally feels like trespassing and then I go around the back and it's a loading dock and it's not just a garage door there's like an accordion thing and then the garage door I'm breaking and entering and then I get in there and there's tires Stacks and stacks and stacks of tires. So I was just like, I give up. I'm out. This is not a print shop either. Like, and then I looked over and I saw this tiny little door. And when I say tiny, I just mean it's just much smaller than the normal regulation size door. And it had a picture (laughs) of Elvis framed, like a little tiny, like three by five. And then underneath, (laughs) in brush type, handset letterpress type it said one man's trash is another man's treasure and I was like I think I found it (laughs) and I like open Alice in Wonderland's door I like open the door and it's just like light streaming in there's aprons and paper and ink and presses and I was like I found it but then Bryce who's like 6'5 comes like 
lumbering out of his office. <laughs> and he was just like, what? Who are you? <laughs> and I was like, and I have a resume typed up with a cover letter, letter in hand. This is like oh, this time you're ready time to go. Charm. I'm ready. Yeah. And I'm wearing like a shirt from the limited. <laughs> and I still haven't upped my, upped my fashion game. So he like comes out. He's just like, who are you? And I was like, I'm Laura. Do you need an intern? And I'm just like, I just figured this is way better than three years of grad school. I'll just work for free for a while and learn everything that I want. And that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. So I worked for Bryce for three years as a on-again, off-again assistant slash unpaid intern. It just depended on how finances were going for him as to whether he could afford to pay me or not. But I just kept showing up because I liked doing the work. And I worked two other jobs. I worked in a coffee shop. I worked in a brewery restaurant. I took pictures of the Country Music Hall of Fame of tourists in front of a green screen. That's how I got to meet the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, my God. Whoa. Tell her old roommate. (laughs) I didn't know it was them. I, like... I like put them like in front of the green screen before you go into the museum, you have to step to the side so that at the end you have the option of buying your, your photograph superimposed in front of the hee-haw cornfield. So I'm just like, hi, step right this way. Thank you for coming to the country music hall of fame. First thing we have you do, I give them the whole spiel. And then they look at me and Chad Smith is like, do we have to do this? And I was like, that's a very common reaction. Um, there's no obligation. You do not have to buy the photos, but I have to take the photos so that you have the option to buy the photos later. Okay. Everybody smile. (laughs) And then they they go into the museum and some like 19 year old girl who works in the box office comes like running out, like crying. And she's like, can you believe that the red hot chili peppers are here? And I was like, how do they get past me? I have to take everybody's picture. And she's like, well, look through your camera roll. And I just was like, is that, is that what they look like? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's no. them. So anyway, so I have that photo. We printed it out. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll be sharing that with the episode. No, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, we got to share that photo. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Check our Instagram. It's there right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's two photos separate. But anyway. Oh um, so all of that to say, I came to Nashville to intern for Bryce. I worked for Bryce for three years. I justified the like paid, non-paid aspect of it by considering it as grad school. Um, but Bryce, I got to go on so many cool trips with him. Like, we went to South by Southwest and did flat stock and I got to meet oh, all yeah. of the poster design, like the little friends of printmaking were there mm-hmm. and I got to like mm-hmm. eat salsa and chips with them. Oh. And like Jay Ryan of the bird machine, who was like someone I'd admired for a long time before I realized he did gig posters. He did some like illustration work and I remember his book covers and I'd be like that guy, like he's here. And, um, Yeah, it just, I met so many cool, fun people. And it was like the opposite experience of 
how I had felt in art school where it's like, it didn't seem like there was a home for my skill set or like my particular style didn't have, didn't have like a landing pad in any of the places I'd tried so far. And when I went to flat stock, I just walked in and I was like, Oh yeah, I can, I can do this. This is, these are my people. So that was a really good feeling. It was really like, it's like the you you get that feeling like where you have like you have an idea of something that you want to do and anybody else who is doing it you have this like burning it's almost envy but it's also just motivation to keep up and it's like if you have that run with it because that's probably a signal that it's something you should do or like something you would be good at. If you have that thing where it's just like like watching the cars drive by and you're just like, I want to go as fast as that car is going. <laughs> like just get get in the road, get in the lane, start driving. Because like at, in art school, it's like I would see people doing things that I thought was amazing, but like I would retract. Like I would do the opposite of trying to get out there. Like I would pull back and be like, I can't do what they're doing. And I can't relate to it. And I can't picture myself in it. And I have no idea what I would draw. Like, it was paralyzing. Mm-hmm. And then it was just like when I walked into flat stock, and even when I walked into the print shop, I just, I like, would just keep catching like nuggets of like, all right, here's a piece of me. And then mm-hmm. this is another bigger piece of me. Mm-hmm. And then here's something else that I could see, like, myself in their shoes kind of situation. And so... Mm-hmm. I mean, who's to say? I'm sure there are other things I could have run into that I would have liked, but that's when I was with Bryce, that was those were the people that I was meeting and I had this had this like giant of a talented printmaker vouching for me. Like he I was his assistant. So it was like I got to meet these people with a little bit of like I don't know the right word, like you're just a special guest. Yeah, it gives a little credibility. You're not just showing up and writing your name yeah. on a piece of paper, hoping someone will take a chance on you. You know, it's like you have someone. There's somebody vouching mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, he's vouching for yeah. me. So it was like, anyway, so I'm really grateful for that experience. And we we got to go to um, Brooklyn for um, the thing that Cannonball puts on. So Martin Mazzora in Brooklyn with Cannonball Press they put on this thing it was just like a big printmaking show and so we went and we did that a couple of times and so then I met like it's like I met the New York people and then I met the Texas people and then I met the Chicago and the Minneapolis printers and so I just like found out that the the network of printmaking and gig posters specifically is all really small and and they're all pretty much solo creators in their studios but then they're in a network that's like more buddies and less competition they give each other work like I can't do this job can you do this job and they like pass jobs out and so there's just like this this camaraderie with it and it was just really sweet to see and I just wanted to keep I wanted to keep swimming in that pool so anyway so I stuck with Bryce and then I got hired at Hatch Show Print. So that place, and this is why it's, I think it's relevant to say where it is, because it's like, 
I went there. That's the place I walked in and handed them a piece of paper with my name and phone number on it. And after I'd worked for Bryce for three years, Nashville is a really small city, or it was. It's getting a lot bigger every day. But um, at that point in time, like Bryce would cut his paper at Hat Show Print, so we would drive there to use their paper cutter. So I got to know the entire staff. Like I got to know Agnes and Julie and Brad and Mary and everybody that worked there like became like a friend. And like we would meet for drinks and talk about what we were working on. And everybody would bring their like personal work and uh, just try to encourage each other. And um, after about three years, it was like time was up to keep being Bryce's assistant. And so Hatch called me and hired me because they're like, well, by this point, you're trained. <laughs> they're like, yeah. after three years, we'd That's say so you're great. pretty well trained. So. Yeah. They hired me and I worked there as a designer for five years and I trained interns, which I love teaching interns. It just, I think it makes me better at my job. Having someone else around who's kind of like keeping you on task, sort of. They don't know it even, but it's just like, I have this personal responsibility to make sure that it's worth their time. That's something I got from interning for Bryce as long as I did I'm so grateful for that experience but I definitely came away with it with like a I have to value this person's time it's my responsibility to like make sure that what they're here for they're learning something and then like if they're not getting paid they'd better be learning like it's an exchange it's a symbiotic relationship they're doing free labor but it's cool labor but it's also going to help them move to the next thing and quickly so I really enjoyed teaching the interns and I really of course enjoyed like the opportunities that I got there because Hatch is so their reputation is undeniably solid so they've been doing posters forever and so our clients were all big and I got to work with the biggest in the music business um that was really amazing So in 2015, I left um, and bought a press and I didn't, when I, I got fired, which was unfortunate. It was, uh, you know, sometimes you just don't get along with everybody. (laughs) So uh, it was time to go and my boss made that decision faster than I was ready to. But if I had seen the writing on the wall, I should have left probably sooner than I did. So I I figured it was over because the whole time I've been doing letterpress, I just was like, well, this is such a cool, weird thing. I'll do it as long as I can until it doesn't make sense. And then I'll go get a real job. I'll go, which I've been listening to your guys' podcasts and people say that a lot. Like, it's just like, at some point I'll have to get a real job. And that's kind of <laughs> what I thought. Like, I was just like, at some point, I'll maybe I'll go to massage therapy school or, you know, like, I'll just uh, come up with um, something else. And I could be good at a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, so when I left Hatch, I was like, well, it's over. But then I think only two months went by. I went and got a job at a coffee shop. And I think only two months passed before I had two conversations back-to-back and ended up with a press. Because... These presses are not easy to find. And I wasn't, 
I wasn't about to go American Pickers trying to find one in somebody's basement or garage in Iowa. So that's pretty much why I was like, it was a, like a barrier of entry with equipment. And it always had been, even like when I was studying in college, I was like, what am I even doing studying this? This stuff is impossible to do outside of academia. And then it was, this is impossible to do outside of someone else's studio. And then this is impossible outside of a job with amazing connections and clientele. You know, it's just like, it kept getting bigger and bigger. And then I was like, well, now that I have none of those things, then it's going to be impossible. But I, you know, I just had a conversation with a guy on a plane and (laughs) he thought that what I did was really cool. Then he was like, I want to invest if you ever find the equipment. And I was like, I won't. (laughs) It's like, I'll loan you the money. And I was like, okay, cool. Nice to meet you. Oh my God. And then (laughs) a week. Yeah, a week later, I went to, uh, I mean, talk about validation, right? He, we're one degree of separation, so it made sense that I started talking to him. It's like I knew him through somebody else, and we just both happened to be on the same plane. And then, so a week later, I'm drinking at Mickey's at this bar, and Brandon, who has had this press, I'm pointing right here because it's right here. Brandon had kind of inherited this press from his professor, when he was in college at MTSU and then he tried his hand at doing like wedding invitation design and he was just, you know, he's married and he was, they were buying a house and he just was like, I just don't think this is the right thing for me right now. And he's like, I'd rather sell it and have somebody who was going to use it. And he was bartending and I was like, don't sell it to anybody else. Don't tell anybody else. Don't talk about it to anybody else. He's like, well, can you buy it? And I was like, I know who to call. (laughs) I have zero dollars, but I know who to call. And so I was just like, just don't tell anybody. And so then I called that person and I just was like, hi, can we get lunch? Because I have some news. So it was like, we got lunch and I told him about it. He like wrote me a check and he was like, pay me back whenever. Wow. And I was like, okay. Oh my God. And so then. I bought the press, but then it's like you buy this $1,200 piece of equipment and you run into more things that are just like, well, this is now, this is impossible. Now, where do I put it? Every Mm -hmm. stage feels impossible until you're doing it, which I think is a very famous quote, but it's just like, you know, trying to figure out how to get this press out of Brandon's studio was just a nightmare. I mean, it weighs so much and trying, it was like, in a it was down two steps that's all two steps but the angle was weird and trying to get it up the steps and on a ramp and I had like I'd recruited all this help and there's just this you know you feel self-conscious asking your friends for help and especially if they have to be strong so it means you have to call ex-boyfriends and like (laughs) you're just like I need everybody it's like Bryce came and then like Two people I dated came. It was just like everybody that I was just like, I need anyone who thinks they can lift something very heavy to just come. And so it sounds yeah. like a rom com oh, movie waiting to happen or no. something. Well, no one will date me just anymore. Put all your ex boyfriends in a room together. 
And for those who have not seen one of these presses in person, it's like the size of a, it's like a coffin with moving parts that are all extremely heavy. Yeah, it's made out of cast iron and it's six feet long and 34 inches wide and it has tiny little gears that you can't lose and like rollers that cost $400 a piece if you drop them and dent them like it's it's a beast but it's from 1947 it still runs which is amazing anyway so yeah so I bought that press and that was the beginning of it and then the the other thing that kind of closes the circle is that Julie Belcher who runs Pioneer House in Knoxville now um she used to be one half of Yeehaw Industries which was the print shop I first walked into and had my like revelation and later on I got to meet Julie like kind of in that three-year to eight-year period of meeting different printmakers because I was like in the biz so we became friends and uh when I bought that press and was looking for a place to put it I went and I talked to her and I was like have I made a huge mistake like you did this you know, where our age difference is such that I was the age when she started, like, you know, like I was the same age. I think she was when she moved everything to Knoxville, maybe or something. It's like close. And so I was like, if you were put yourself back in my shoes, like your shoes, but, my, but now I was like, would you do it all over again? Would you start? Cause now that I have the press, I have to start buying the type. I have to start buying the furniture. I have to start buying all of the, like, the accessories that go along with it and um and she was like you know it would be awfully hard to do it now because letterpress has become so popular she's like when we started doing it she and kevin bradley her partner at the time back when they had yeehaw she was like when kevin and i started doing it we were buying stuff wholesale from you know just be like a barn filled with stuff that was covered in dust and nobody cared about it and we would just buy it all clean it up sort through it and then we we have a gold mine of like a refined collection that we got from all of that driving all over the country and picking it up and she's like so it would be really hard she goes but if you know someone who would give you a leg up she's like then maybe you could just try it out for a while and see if you really wanted to do it so I moved to Knoxville and worked out of what was Yeehaw Industries. <laughs> so I moved my press in and used her type and her equipment and her paper cutter. And so it was like this little like training wheels season where it was like I had my own company. I was running my own like clientele. I was, you know, it was just me, but I was renting space and equipment from Julie. And um, she was just like, let's get you on your feet. And there was like this unspoken thing where it was going to be short term. So she was like, eventually you'll need to buy your own stuff. You know, you'll need to start thinking about that. And if you're really serious, you know, then start buying it. And so for three years, I worked out of her shop and then became friends with Sarah and Thomas and all the Knoxville people. You know, there's a lot of letterpress people in Knoxville. Um, it's a pretty strong printmaking town. So that community was really great to be a part of for a while. But um, 
I just felt like our time was coming to a close and I really wanted to get back to Nashville. All of my work, all of my jobs are mostly coming from here, the musician stuff. So it just made sense to come back. And so I started looking for a studio in town and moved back here in 2018. And then 2018 to 2019 was like settling in, painting, building it out, building shelving, making sure the bathroom worked. And so that first year was just kind of like get calibrated. And so in 2019, I was like ready to charge ahead, take on some jobs, get it going again. And then 2020 really just stunk, of course, for everybody. So it was like that that January and February thing I was talking about in the beginning. 2020, January and February was the first one where I was like, I deserve my like, vacation. I deserve to do my like two month thing. And I'm going to save up all my money in 2019 because I moved and I restarted and it's working. So I'm going to treat myself to a extravagant trip to England. So I went to England and had a great time and spent all of my money and then came back at the end of February 2020. And then there was a tornado two days later that ripped up half of my neighborhood there was that one very very violent one that hit nashville in 2020 and it was like march 3rd i think or march 2nd um and then five days later or something like a week later was when they said you had to quarantine but we had spent nashville had spent that whole week prior to the quarantine just out Side. Like we were all out cleaning up, cooking for our neighbors. Like, you know, we had people sleeping in on our floors that didn't have houses right now. We were like, everybody was buying groceries for whoever and diapers and paper towels and everything you can possibly like donate. And um, I think every single person in town learned how to use a chainsaw that week. I mean, it was, it was a, massive the community really just everyone came out of their houses and um some people didn't have a choice but it was like everybody else came out and like brought their wheelbarrows and their rakes and everything it was really like kind of sweet in a tragic way but then you know and it stopped everything it's like because everyone reshifted their like I didn't I was working on a job that had I finished it that week, I would have gotten paid for it, but I'd put it off because I was just like, wait, 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 we've got a thing happening here. I need to like, I need to help. So I'm not going to print right now. I'm going to like go do this and then I'll print next week. And so then I got back to do it the next week and they were like, sorry, show's canceled. Like everything's canceled. It's all quarantine now. And so it was like every job had a full calendar and every custom job on the calendar just went away immediately and indefinitely because you remember in the beginning it was like we'll give it two weeks it was so much guessing and you're like I don't know if this is going to last a few weeks or a few months and you know now yeah. we're two years in and it still is like it feels surreal it's still yeah we're still not really back to normal so no yeah so that that two-month break that I treated myself to 
depleted my funds. (laughs) It was like, whoops. But yeah. And then like I did a lot of uh during that time I did a lot of uh I had some like Etsy sales and stuff and I did uh food delivery for a while. Like I worked for my friend's catering company and we would like deliver meals to like like whole nice catered meals to people because otherwise she'd have been, had weddings all summer, you know. So it was just like she was trying to figure out how to be a caterer in a pandemic. And yeah, I just did a lot of little side jobs because I wasn't, I didn't fight for it, but I wasn't immediately eligible for unemployment. So I didn't get unemployment and I did get a PPP loan, a little, little one. Um, it's funny thing about sole proprietorship. You don't look like you're worth very much. So they don't, <laughs> they don't grant you a whole lot of money. Oh yes, I I know that one well. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, you wrote off all your expenses last year. Good job. Now you're worth nothing. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh. Yeah. Well, before we get into all of the ways that you've been adapting your business um, throughout COVID and what the last few years have been like since really kind of going off on your own, um, I just wanted to say that I love so much about your story because you have all of these wonderful full circle moments. And I think um, it's important for, for artists and especially emerging artists to hear that just because a door might close at one point in time doesn't mean that it's permanently closed um you know like a rejection early on doesn't mean that you may not be able to build on those relationships or you know when the timing is right there may actually be opportunity there um so i love those stories that you told of you know coming back to work with hat show and then with um yeehaw at uh, a later point you know maybe not when you first were trying to move out there and get your start but um I also just love the story of, you know, all of these little nudges and moments where you're kind of finding your people and finding your community, um, because I think that can take so long, you know, years for for so many of us. And uh, again, to kind of like listen to those little nudges that make you feel like okay I'm on the right track or like this is interesting and exciting to me and I'm I don't know where this is going to go but you know I want to go in this direction and um, I was just thinking about all of this as you were telling your story of you know not fitting in an art school (laughs) kind of hitting these early stumbling blocks but eventually uh, like through conferences through like a single conversation with a mentor you know you start to build this sense of what might be possible for your life as an artist and so um I just wanted to point those things out because I feel like it's a really valuable lesson for us all to take that you know and even now I mean obviously what one thing we've been talking about is just that that feeling of not knowing what's next or like can you can you do this thing or is it really impossible or even having to shift gears and having to do something different you know is is maybe that never goes away but yeah, it's been really fun to hear about your journey. Well, good. Glad. <laughs> I spared no detail. Just kidding. I was going to say, there's also something that you had talked about, and it's kind of helping me process my own art school experience, because I definitely felt similarly turned off by the fine art experience and felt like 
it was really hard for me to justify my desire to want to learn my craft. And it was beyond the like, I just want to know. And it felt a little easier in departments like printmaking or photography where Mm -hmm. there's such a focus on how to do the technique and it like allows Mm -hmm. you to kind of, I don't know, explore that part of it. And Mm -hmm. I remember in art school, there was such a, just a general attitude of like art versus craft. Craft isn't art. And I was like, I feel very differently. And I really feel like I identify with craft and it feels so art to me. And I don't feel the need to necessarily putting certain things behind it beyond the like, I just really need to make this. And like, I just really want to. And it always feels really validating to hear someone else with the similar experience because I'm like, oh, finally, like, yes, I wish more people had said this sooner. I wish I had heard this kind of stuff sooner to realize that like, the way you approach it is the way you approach it. And you don't have to push yourself into a box or like justify why you want to do it. Yeah. I think we're in like a golden age of craft right now. Like illustration mm-hmm. and craft is like really doing something fun and there's so much freedom in it and a full range of skill set, you know, and expression. And it's just, it's like the, there weren't market, like craft fairs, like what we've been doing. Like craft fair used to mean it was like a crocheted, toilet roll cover and like uh you know somebody who you know glues seashells together into a critter with glasses you know like it's yeah it's like, like the maker's movement is real <laughs> yeah yeah I just I think that we're very lucky and I'm sure it's partly to do with just Etsy you know starting it off and and then changing so that everyone was like we should be doing this in person now yeah that's a lot of things yeah yeah I it almost felt like at some point I was ready for to be mercifully put out of my misery like I was just like just somebody tell me it's over you know and it was like when I when I first got fired I was almost relieved if I hadn't been so mad I would have also been relieved you know like there was it was a mix of those two feelings because I was like I've been wondering when the bottom was going to fall out, and here it is. Now I get to get on with my life. Now I can go and do what I'm supposed to do, you know? And then it was like, but then here comes Brandon with the press, and I'm just like, well. Yeah, it's like a sign from the universe. (laughs) All right. Okay. It's not over. I'll just keep going then, you know? And I, it happens over and over again that I'm just like, well, is this it? Is it over? You know, it's like, well, every February, but, uh, but also just the pandemic and like, what's so crazy is like through the pandemic, I just kept paying my bills. I don't know how I racked up Mm -hmm. some credit card debt that I don't love, but like, hard same. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, you know, I wanted to buy a house and I maybe will, but like, it feels discouraging right now because housing prices are through the roof and I have more credit card debt than I've ever had. So it's just like, I just feel like the last two years, I wish I could just erase the whole thing for everyone. But 
financially speaking, it, it wasn't helpful. So I feel like there is definitely when you work for yourself, there isn't a safety net. But at the same time, you can get by with a lot less. And that's not ideal. And that's not really like the goal. That's not my mantra or anything. But the reason that I can keep scraping by is because I have the ability to scrape. You know, like people with employees, people with a high overhead. Um, my studio space is relatively cheap right now, which is very fortunate. You know, it's just like, and when I get paid for a job, it's a nice chunk of money. You know, it's not, I don't have to worry about like, trickling is nice too. It's nice if there's like a steady trickle. But, you know, if I have one job on the books, that's $2,500. And I'm like, great. That's, you know significant portion of the month great thank you <laughs> all I need one more then I can make it yeah you started to talk about this a little bit but I was wondering um if you or what kinds of maybe big changes or pivots did you have to make throughout the pandemic um especially being in a place like Nashville where so much of your clientele is related to in-person events or the music industry, which was also really impacted. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Look at, you have this wall behind you. Like, Amazing work. All show posters. Yeah. For yeah. listeners that are not watching, which is all of you, because we don't share the video, uh, Laura just tilted up her camera and showed just poster. Of like a hundred show poster posters. And it's beautiful. And I just want to stare at them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. just to say that no shows happened yeah it was just like and a whole two almost two years where every show was canceled right. and even shows that were like they're gonna go through with it they didn't know if they were gonna go through it even last year it's like they didn't mm -hmm. know if they were gonna go through with it so they were hesitant to order any added expense mm -hmm. yeah. which included hiring an artist to make merch you know and it's just like keep all their expenses small just in case they have to cancel at the last second. And it's just like, I get it. I totally understand. And I was like, I'm going to be the last person in this like whiplash to come back. You know, like it's just like in the series of things that are important to get once we get going again, this is a major novelty. Like nobody needs a letterpress poster. And while I think they add value and I love what I do and I feel very fortunate. I, I'll i be the first person to be like last 2020 was a reckoning of like, oh, God, <laughs> why do I do it? <laughs> why yeah. am I doing this? So how, how did you navigate that or what were some other ways that you had to kind of pivot the type of work that you were doing? Um, I did some illustration work. I started trying. I've put off forever working digitally and while I don't think I've tackled it I certainly made some headway and I did some like there were a lot of fundraisers you know and so it was like t-shirts that went on sale where all the money went to benefit tornado relief and you know things like that so like I took a lot of jobs that were just um digital design where my drawings were scanned in and then we worked them into like I did a, a box design for field notes, like their subscription boxes. That was a real like uh, a real, I don't know, rhinestone in my crown. I don't know. I was just really that was a nice 
because I love field notes and I feel like all the designers that they hire to do stuff are all very legit and some of them are like good buddies that I just have been jealous of but so it was nice it was nice to get that email so yeah so I tried to say yes to as much digital work as possible to force myself to work digitally because I would like to find a more sustainable I I love carving and I want to keep carving and printing but it's hard on my body and god forbid this press breaks knock on wood I'll knock um, on wood for you. <laughs> thank you. I've got a lot of wood around me. I really could knock on wood. There's wood in every direction. Um, but yeah, like, I would like to be able to transition to the uh, 21st century and to figure out what my art looks like naked, you know, like, because that's how it feels if it's not carved. It's like, what does it look like without the the protection of the process, you know, because I still have a little bit of that trauma that it wasn't good enough, you know, that it wasn't like enough all by itself without any tricks, without any bells and whistles, without like a cool split fountain gradient that people can be like, Whoa, look at that sunset. You know, it's just like, (laughs) it's just the drawing. How, how does that stand on its own two legs? And how can I like, bolster my own courage but beef it up in a way that it's also legitimately substantial um and a lot of that just comes with practice using digital stuff until I'm comfortable till I find my voice in it um and knowing that I belong I mean I think if there's any theme to this interview so far it's just like find your sense of belonging and like excel in that that's I think the biggest thing because if I feel insecure I make crap you know like if I feel nervous or insecure back on my heels if you're making me draw a football team I'm going to make crap and it's like I'll either make it with a bad attitude like that or feeling inferior which is also bad so it's just like I have to be able to find something that resonates. But I listened to um, Josh Cochran. Yeah, Brooklyn Illustrator. Listen to Josh Cochran's. And that, gosh, that guy, that one really, like, spoke to me on so many levels. But when he was talking about, um, I even wrote it down. He was just, like, saying no to things that, you know, that aren't in your wheelhouse, but, like, curating your portfolio but on the front end like it's just like if you don't want that to exist with your name on it you know don't don't do that job which was just confirming to me after you know just saying no is such an important thing that I for so long resisted because I was just like well I'm poor (laughs) help me I'm poor like I was just like I must say yes because I don't have the privilege to say no and the fact is, when you say no to something that you know you would be unhappy doing, it means that there's space on your schedule for something else, and the something else won't be crammed into a corner by this other thing that you hate doing. Um, there's enough stuff that we hate doing that we have to do all the time. Emails, bookkeeping, yes. Yes. Uh, cleaning the studio. Yes. Like, 
reorganizing. Like there's so much. <laughs> it's that like that expectations reality chart. Amanda made it. Made yeah. It. We, yeah. We talked about that a few weeks ago and it's so true. I'm surrounded by how... multiple piles of trash in my studio right now. Yeah. I'm in a triangle I mean, of trash. <laughs> these are my receipts and taxes. This I haven't even started yet. Yeah. Oh, I've just piled them up. That's all I did. That's as far as I got. I took them out of the folder and dumped them on the table. And I was like, that feels right, like well. a step to me. <laughs> yeah, totally. It does. It's just been sitting there for 10 days, but I did it. Well, there's, you know, there's the stuff that we say yes to when our back's against the wall because you feel like you've just got to, you know, you've got to pay your bills that month or or you're pivoting because of a pandemic. But I think there was also something you said um, earlier on that I really liked, um, just maybe in a bigger picture sense of trying to figure out like where you want your work to go and, you know, wh- what kinds of projects you want to be taking on, um, or even like the kind of work that you want to do, like where you see your life headed and just recognizing um, what makes you expand or contract and that feeling of like resistance where, you know, maybe those were like those subconscious signs telling you that this wasn't the kind of art school environment that you wanted to be in. Meanwhile, you were seeing and like starting to discover this whole community of letterpress and printmakers and feeling, you know, this like expansion that was sort of telling you that this was something that you, you know, you wanted to do more of. And I feel like it's those little internal signs that uh, can help to, you know, nudge us along or point us in a new direction. And so it's like, how do we pay more attention to that and you know, separate, like, of course, there's that day-to-day work and, like, those projects that you take on because you feel you have to in the moment, but when you're really, like, thinking about those bigger picture decisions, how can we really listen to those, um, you know, internal signs and figure out what's right for us? Yeah, I, that's a great, I don't know the answer, even though I just told the story of knowing that I was in the right place. I don't, I also had that tiny little caveat where I was like, I could have gotten on a different plane. Like I, I could have just not gone to San Diego that day. Like it. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's like this element I, of chance. And then to Brandon it. would have offered me the press and I would have said, I can't afford it. There's no way I can buy it from you. And it would have just been game over and I would have done something else. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but I do feel like I want to say I've never felt 100% confident. I mean, like I went to college and was like going to do pre-med because I was just like, art doesn't count. Like, (laughs) so I'm good at it. It, That's not real. It's not a real job. It's not a thing, you know, and just like always, always, always second guessing. And then just being pleasantly surprised when it works out, when I can pay my bills, my cat's fed, you know, like it's just like, I've got my rent. I've got my cat. I've got a nice car now that I drive that has a car payment, but it's nice and I don't have to fix it every five miles. The horn stops um, when you stop pressing the it. The horn stops when I'm not pressing it. <laughs> I don't have to plug the headlights in. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I will say sometimes I, I worry that like I, I should have set some goals before. And I mean, it's not too late. I'm not dead. But I just kind of would decide at the fork in the road what feels better. You know, like, well, 
I don't know which way to go, but here's an option. Then it kind of feels like it could be cool. You know, and it's just like, well, that feels cool. And then it's like, oh, actually, this is cool. This is really cool. And I'm really happy I'm here. But like, I wouldn't have known that coming to Nashville to visit my cousins, you know, I just I just wouldn't have predicted that. But I'm also not the kind of person who knew that I wanted to go to Yale and knew that I wanted to study biophysics. And, you know, it's just like, whatever that is, I didn't have that in my DNA, you know, but like, as far as little things like buying a house, I do really wish that earlier on, I would have set a financial goal, you know, and like maybe um, eaten out a little bit less in my 20s. And, uh, you know, saved a little bit more money. It's amazing how much money. That's something I learned in the pandemic, saved a lot of money, not eating out. (laughs) But yeah, that's just like, those are the kinds of things where I feel like I would have been a little bit more intentional um, earlier. And that would have been very wise and helpful. And it would have been nice had someone given me a business course at some point in time in art school, which I think is a very common complaint with anybody who's been to art school is like, why the heck didn't they teach us how to be small business owners? Because we are all sole proprietor, LLC, small businesses. We are all fighting to explain to every person at the county clerk's office what it is that we do and that, no, it's not manufacturing. And no, I don't need to be zoned for manufacturing or pay an added property tax situation. Like all of that information would have been very helpful on the front end of like, here's how to navigate local governmental standard of operations. Like, and the first thing that I would love to do is hire, you know, it's like, I would love to, they always talk about like hire somebody to do what they're good at. If if you're not good at it, find the person who is good at it and kind of like have them excel at what they do. I would love to have an accountant or a bookkeeper. I haven't been able to find anybody who will do it for like cheap enough, but also that will understand what it is that I'm doing. Etsy's finance forms. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to that like creative industry. It just is so different from any other. And so you need people that understand that and can, yeah, I mean, these are all these little like business basics that we, you you would never think about, you know, needing to learn starting out um, and isn't necessarily taught in, in art school. And so, I mean, that was really the the purpose for starting the podcast is trying to have these conversations and, you know, find out from other artists how they were doing it. But um, there's such a learning curve uh, because it does look unlike any other industry or career path. And so it can often feel like you're just kind of finding your way in the dark. And um, I don't know, maybe that like feeling of, I don't know if this is going to work or like maybe, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do this next impossible thing is sort of, reinforced by that because unless you are seeking out those examples like you were starting to meet other printmakers and and starting to have these conversations and realizing okay there is a pathway there is like a frame of reference for what I'm trying to do that I can look to um it's really hard to just figure all of that out on your own and I do feel like all of that contributes to some of that 
like psychological self-doubt that you know so many artists tend to feel because not only do we have to like justify our own work and creativity and just like the artistic side of what we're trying to make but then there's all these questions and all of these like new skill sets and like different you know phases of business that we have to navigate in addition and it's a lot that's totally it's it is a lot and I I think I have the thought a lot of times where I go, I like think of somebody I know who's doing what I'm doing and it's comforting to know that they can do it. You know, like as simple as that is, I'm just like, Amanda's doing this and she's okay. Like, I'm okay, she's okay. She just bought a house. Amanda's okay. She's okay. I'm sure it's not easy. We're going to be okay. (laughs) She's all right. We're going to be okay. I'm going to live through it. It's going to be fine. The Mm -hmm. spreadsheets aren't going to kill me. I think I feel like I'd rather be dead than doing them, but they're not going to kill me. And I had actually, I had a really good friend who, um, so like hiring, obviously hiring a bookkeeper who just does it all the time would be great. But I have a really good friend who is now just offered because, but yeah, so finding a friend who is willing to just like, you know, help you move a press or sit with you and do stupid data entry that feels like pulling teeth. And you're like, I was embarrassed. I was legitimately embarrassed to have her come in because I was just like, what if you think this is easy? What if you're going to make me feel like even more of a dum-dum by looking over all of the stuff that I've been so paralyzed by? And then I find out like, it's really not hard, you know? But it was the opposite. It was incredibly comforting and such a relief. I nearly cried. I was just like, thank you. Yeah. That's how I feel with this whole conversation. It's been so just reassuring to, you know, hear about your story and all of those like unexpected detours that you took that ultimately kind of led you, you know, back to maybe like what you were meant to be doing. I don't know, but it just feels like, yeah, this theme of like searching for belonging and finding community and then learning how to like lean on those people um, at different moments in time is really like coming through for me. And I feel like we could just keep talking with you for hours and hours about all the ins and outs. We probably should go. (laughs) um, I mean, we can continue the conversation off offline off the record for as long as we want but well before we wrap it up where can listeners find your work where can they follow you if they're in a band that is in need of a gig poster where can they hire you oh yeah i have a instagram account um it's called camp never nice c-a-m-p-n-e-v-e-r-n-i-c-e and uh, also a website, just campnevernice.com. Yeah. Laura, thank you so much. You're so welcome. I had a great time. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Don't forget, if you're a fan of the podcast, please leave us a rating and review, submit to our listener spotlight, 
And if you want to support the podcast by making a tax-deductible donation, head over to our website, beyondthe.studio. Well, I, was just, I was going to say, what's funny is um, I have a job that I'm working on right now. And so I was like, I'll just take a break. It'll be nice. I'll just take a quick break and do this interview. <laughs> And then I'll go back. Oh to no! My and we've taken like hours of your it's time. Like the SpongeBob scene, like two hours <laughs> later. <laughs> well, I never get. My mom always knows when I'm procrastinating because she'll be like, "I'll call her and I'll be in the best mood. Like, I'll just be so chatty, so happy to talk as long as she wants. <laughs> I want to hear about. She's the like, couch "All right, what are you avoiding?" <laughs> I'm like, you tell me about the gray upholstery. Tell me about it. I want to hear. Oh so God. are the arms, are they like slender arms? Or is this like a couch with like big arms? Is this like chunky? They're like oh. mid-century. I could talk to her for like two hours about the couch she's picking out when I have something due. Well, <laughs> I'm really like, glad we could be a part of this procrastination process. Um, I feel like we've well, really like come out ahead. about it at first. I was worried about it at first, and I was like, actually, no, I'm going to do a great interview. Yeah. Because I'm trying to get away from my job right now, so this is going to be escapism at its best. 